Hello there. Uh, don't worry, the familiar theme tune will begin in a moment. I just wanted to throw in a quick note at the beginning here that uh, Morgan's audio is going to sound a wee bit funky in this episode. There was a little hiccup with what Mike was getting the audio, and it wasn't the nice clean mic. It was just the default computer mic. Suffice to say, it's not the end of the world. She could still hear all of her fun quips and things clearly, and uh, we actually recorded two episodes in this session, so it's going to be the same for next week. But after that, moving forward, it should be fine. We're going to be much more vigilant about these things. And uh, yeah, that's all I had to say. So without further ado, on with the show. And introducing Elvis Presley. Elvis, 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 Elvis. Hello and welcome to Elvis Has Left the Movies, a podcast dedicated to the cinematic legacy of Mr. Elvis Aaron Presley, journeying through all 31 of his feature films. On top of the movie talk, we'll also be exploring the bigger picture as far as the culture of those times as seen through a present-day lens. I'm Mathieu Langlois, or Matt for simplicity, and I'm joined in this endeavor, as always, by Morgan. Hi everyone, my name's Morgan Kegashange. I'm a big fan of Elvis Presley, and I can't wait to talk about a bunch of movies all the time, every day, all day, months, weeks, you name it. Let's get into it. What are we watching today? Today we're watching movie number seven, if I recall, uh, <laughs> Wild in the Country, released June 15th, 1961. This is the third and final film that he makes with 20th Century Fox, which I'm sure they regretted that they didn't try to <laughs> get more movies out of him, because the, the two previous were, of course, Love Me Tender and uh, Flaming Star. So they didn't renew his contract? No. Well, like I said, he still was technically on that Paramount contract at this point. Right. And would actually go on to do his... The most movies he did was with MGM. Oh. That's the majority of them. But yeah, 20th Century Fox, they only got three movies out of him. Wow. And this was the last one of those three. And the best one. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. Um, Matt and I try not to talk about the movie too much before we get started but we couldn't help ourselves this time and we both had the uh what's the word i don't know consensus whatever the point is we both started watching the movie and you know elvis movies you know they're they're, they're b movies they don't got a lot of budget they don't got a lot going on and like i don't know maybe 20 minutes into watching wild in the country we both had the thought like wait a minute is this movie actually good? Yeah. <laughs> is this actually a good movie? <laughs> is this like the hidden gem in his filmography that for some reason people don't talk about more? I think so. I like we're we're gonna have to wait and see till we get to the rest of the movies. And also, like I really liked Kid Galahad, and I'm probably looking at it through rose-colored glasses. Mm, I'm very interested in that revisit. Yeah, yeah. I th I think it was actually a, a really a little campy, but like this movie was actually it wasn't the greatest thing ever. It's just that when you consider the legacy of Elvis movies, this movie was really thoughtful and kind of poignant and sensitive. Yes, <laughs> in a way sensitive that... is a very good word because there's like really tender scenes that are like slow. Very tender. And they really let it breathe. And I was just like very surprised. It was very, it was a nice change of pace. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, some of those 
Some of the, now there's a couple of things still that I don't agree with in the movie mm-hmm. with the framing and, and the way things pile up together, you know. But despite that, I think we really owe our thanks to whoever was directing this because he knew what he was working with. I think that's probably what it takes to make a good Elvis movie is not necessarily to make it a great movie, but to work with the tools that you have to just do a good job. Don't, you know, don't be so cynical, you know? Yes. Which we say, and then the very next movie that we're going to get to is Blue Hawaii, and then it's, it's all over. Hawaii. It's done after that. We're back at it. I, I noticed, too, there's this consumerist flavor in Elvis movies because they're a product of this weird working relationship between Elvis and his manager and studios, which always, you always get that gross taste of hollywood in that you know and this movie was really devoid of that you really got the sense that this wasn't about a cash grab as much as it was about telling the story of the characters and Mm -hmm. the times that they lived in and stuff like that and it probably helped that this is once again this is the third movie now that is actually based on a novel so we've got like a source material that is not just let's build the movie around elvis it's just like let's cast elvis in this movie based on a book and that book uh was called the lost country came out in 1958 it was written by jr salamanca this was his debut novel oh uh he went on to write a Never mind. sorry i'm thinking of this uh, he went on to write a book in 1961 called lilith which was also made into a movie in 1964 with uh, warren Beatty. so yeah the book adaptations have given us king creole They've given us Wild in the Country, and they've given us Flaming Star. So it's two out of three and bad. Yeah, two out of three is pretty pretty good, actually. And then uh, we might as well transition right into the writer of this as well. Yes, let's. Because what a heavy hitter. It's Clifford Odette, who is like this big-time playwright screenwriter of the day. Like, he wrote a 1957 movie called The Sweet Smell of Success with Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis. That is like... Uh, pretty big all-time classic mm-hmm. although this was his last screen credit like working for movies uh wow. he died in 63 it was only uh, two years later yeah it, it, you get the sense again like it's not the greatest movie of all time but it's just it's very poignant and very sensitive for an Elvis movie and uh, i'm not surprised to hear that that was the result of having some people that actually knew what they were doing not that you know not to be mean to everybody else that worked no. on an Elvis movie it's just that you know credit where credit is due right and on top of that though from my research it appears that clifford adetz was actually fired two weeks before filming and the script was only half written and so the director finished the script but it's okay because the director philip dunn was actually primarily a writer more than a director Mm. Um, but he did a really good job with the directing but he was as a writer he actually got oscar nominated for writing the screenplay to 1941's how green was my valley which no one remembers that movie, but it is infamous because it's the movie that won Best Picture instead of Citizen Kane in 1941. Oh. It beat out Citizen Kane. I've seen How Green Was My Valley, and I vaguely remember it has something to do with like a mining town or something, and it's just kind of a quaint little story about a village. But <laughs> Imagine beating out Citizen Kane, though. Holy shit. Oh, we already dropped the swears. We got to start keeping a timer. How long can I go without dropping? Yes, I've had that in the back (laughs) of my mind as like a joke. We should, yeah. There should be an air horn sound. (laughs) Put it in post. (laughs) Yes. 
Um, I'm going to jump around. I want to, let's mention the, the synopsis of the film too. Yeah. Um, let, let me do it. I've got this. Sure. Can I wait, can I give you the one sentence log line and you can get into the plot if you want? Yes. Because this is what, like, off IMDb, it says, A troubled young man discovers that he has a knack for writing when a counselor encourages him to pursue a literary career. Yeah, pretty much, right? So Elvis plays this young country kid, and his mom dies, his family is troubled and falling apart. He's getting into really serious fights with his brother, I believe, Mm -hmm. uh, so much so that they pull him in, and they're not going to arrest him. They're going to try and put him through some like intense rehabilitation program to get him back to regular living. He is on parole. Like he's on parole. Yes. So while he's meeting the parole board and they're deciding what they're going to do with him, they decide to send him off with his uncle who seemingly graciously offers to help young Elvis out. Yes. Room and board. What's uh, Elvis's name in this one? Oh yes. Uh, Let's yeah. Let's not forget our important acknowledgement of names. So his name in this movie is Glenn Tyler. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Yeah. I did not look at Ellis and go, oh, that's a Glenn. That, that guy's a Glenn. Yeah, no, for sure. Deke Rivers is still on top. Of course. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so his uncle agrees to help out. And we find out it's because his uncle has a daughter who has a child and is quote-unquote married to some guy who nobody has ever seen Mm -hmm. and who's left town to work on some big business stuff and in order to smooth things over reputation wise for her he wants to set her up with elvis and kind of get a family situation put together to kind of dissuade the gossip right and i want to touch on this later um i do want to talk about the structure of the society that the women in this film live in because it's very interesting there's a lot of ladies in this movie we got a trio there's a lot yeah there's well there's not a lot a lot but there's there's enough that that yeah. you get the you get the picture they get equal like screen time well almost equal screen time with elvis is the point they're all like paired yeah. off with him as like which one will he choose you know? and they're rather well-rounded mm-hmm. like none of them are as no one in this film except for the uncle is as classic textbook bad wayward women as as they're generally portrayed in elvis movies each of them have a rounded out character that being obtuse for the sake of moving the plot forward does not happen. It's not on the table with these women, which I really appreciated. Yeah. Even though the I'm going to talk about later, even though it's not great what ha- what's going on in the film and how they portray these women. So um, this girl is not into it, right? She's also she you know she's a person. She wants to be in control of her own life, and um, her and Elvis, while they may be attracted to each other ipso facto does not make a relationship and on top of that elvis is dating a very nice young girl from the other side of the tracks who's a really nice young lady and her parents don't approve of elvis because he gets fights and is on parole and is acting like an asshole and yada 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 so uh part of his parole after he gets set up with the job at his uncle's and they show you a bit of background there about the family situation Elvis has to go to the psychiatrist's office and have like a little talk every now and then, which they, it, I don't know, in, in law that tends to be mandatory, but in the movie they filmed it as something that wasn't expressly mandatory, that you didn't, you didn't have to do it if you really didn't right. want to. I don't know. But anyway, enter the older woman 
who is um, single and uh, a doctor, which is really cool. And also, uh, she's involved with a man who's married, who's upset with his wife and wants to divorce her. He has a son who's an alcoholic and who's upset that his father and his mother aren't getting on anymore. And um, that dad character and the doctor lady character um, have like this little tenuous situation going on. They used to be involved with one another. And then she walked out because of the marriage situation. Mm -hmm. And he keeps kind of, you know, haranguing her about it. But I want to also mention, this is also the first movie that we see... Um, that we actually see CC a black character. We we kind of sort of saw like some singing characters in King Creole. Yeah. But in this movie, we get our first black character with lines. And I like this, even though we'll get into it. It's not the greatest representation. It's 1960s. Everything's still really icky. Hollywood doesn't want to see black people in movies. And then smack dab in the middle of an Elvis movie, you have a black man who is a lawyer working for this guy. And I thought that was really cool. You know, just to finally see... It's it's so interesting to watch these movies and see that creeping in mm -hmm. over time and what that looked like um, in film. So she has her own problems going on and she starts talking to Elvis and she gets attached to him in this strange kind of way where she really wants him to succeed not necessarily because she's immediately in love with him but because it seems like the subtext here is that you know she's attracted to his passion and his youth and his you know his situation and she wants to help and so she starts getting more and more personally involved with him Mm -hmm. outside of the responsible scope of what would be normal in a patient-doctor relationship. And she does have backstory where she had a, a husband, a younger husband who passed away. Yes. And so she's she has some trauma from that and then in walks this young guy full of life really, you know, in between two places, right? So he's he's being pressured by his uncle to go down this one road and he's being pressured to try and live up to the expectations of his current girlfriend and then there's this other woman who's becoming more engaged with him than really she ought to be which they kind of blow over which i hope they wouldn't but anyway they did so elvis is talking to her and she says you know you should write some of these things down you have a way of explaining things with words you should try writing again they talk about how his mom wanted him to go to college about how she used to I think she used to read. Um, yeah, know, she was like that. big into books. She gave him his passion for books. Now, I want to say this. I, I'm not sure. I may have missed this because I just, I just didn't get the context. But Elvis is talking to the psychiatrist about his relationship with his mother. And she says, what did your mother do? Like, what was she like and whatever? And Elvis says she was enslaved. And I'm not entirely sure what that was supposed to mean because i really highly doubt that they meant it in like the 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 traditional term we think of when we hear somebody say they're enslaved no yeah for sure 
I think they meant that his mom had to really bend over backwards and essentially worked herself to death to support her family because their father was a deadbeat. That's what he says, yeah. Yeah, and so that implicates the way that he saw the world growing up and whatever. So he starts writing all this stuff down about the way he sees the world and the way he thinks about shit or whatever. And he brings it to the psychiatrist and she's like, this is really great. You should go to school. And he starts getting defensive because... You know, he's got a lot of feelings and emotions, which is not well really seen in an Elvis movie. And he starts rejecting that and he starts getting involved with... Uh, you, you'll see this pattern in the movie where he'll try to live up to the expectations to make this relationship with the good girl work. And then he'll meet some pushback to that and he'll start rejecting and turning back to this other girl this troubled young lady mm-hmm. and one of the one of the things you see that happen with is uh he got into a fight with that dad's son the alcoholic kid yes and they get into a fight a lot and every time they get into a fight elvis would kind of turn away from his good girlfriend and, and start messing around with the quote-unquote bad girlfriend and uh, things reach their zenith when he's with the good girl and the father comes up and basically says, you're trash and I don't want to see you ever again and blah, blah, blah. So he runs off to this young girl and the context here is that there's um, a sexual encounter. Then they get drunk and they ride up to the psychiatrist's home and they are like goofing around, you know, being being drunk and she kind of like laughs it off a little bit she's like oh you know there they go being troubled youths and whatever and eventually Elvis does bring her some of his writings and she sends them off to a um a professor yes and on the way back from that college they took a trip out to go give this to the professor they say we would accept you in school I think there's a mention of a scholarship I'm not sure and they're like, yeah, you, you could totally come to school if you wanted to. And on the way back, they stop at a hotel and their feelings for each other start to become intense. And Elvis goes into her room and is like, I love you. And they have a little smooch and they have a little hugging. And they very tastefully, I, I really, this was my favorite shot in the movie. Agreed. They very tastefully, she was like, I, we're not going to do this. This is too you know, this is too much too fast. And Elvis goes back to his room, doesn't act like a fucking asshole, which was nice to see in a movie like this. And there's this really beautiful shot of this woman unpacking the emotions of of what she's going through. And it's done very subtly with some beautiful like hand gestures, some very slow movements. Like she's you, she's just taking you through the the emotional feeling of the shot. And I think they did that really really well. And while they're at the hotel, the drunk kid shows up because he takes girls to this hotel to screw around with, yeah. and notices that Elvis and this teacher are in the hotel together. And so he starts spreading a rumor around town that she's sleeping with one of her clients, essentially. And this rumor is very damaging immediately, which is, I think, actually a fair shake at how things would have gone down for a young woman who used to be married, who buried her husband, to be involved with a young guy and have it come out that they went to a hotel together is just like, there was so much pressure 
on young people to adhere to a social standard of relationships that was nearly impossible to uphold. There was nothing that you could do right, especially if you were a woman. And um, they showed that really effectively without saying so. So uh, Elvis gets into a fight with this kid and um, first he gets into a fight with his dad. The, the drunk kid gets into a fight with his dad and he's like, why would you tell everybody this rumor and he's like because then you're not going to be able to throw me and my mom in the ashtray like you want to which i thought was a really poignant take on that situation sure they show that this kid is troubled he's alcoholic he's got issues going on and they give you this uh little shot that shows you that there's an undeveloped background behind these characters that is coming through in the movie effectively so the dad slaps the kid, and then Elvis gets into a fight with him later at a bar and punches him. And they established earlier that the dad told the psychiatrist lady, he said, I haven't told anyone else. My son has what's called an athlete's heart, which is his heart is sensitive and too much excitement can, can kill him, essentially. So Elvis punches this kid out, and the kid dies. And at the hearing, you know, they're going to, they want to put him away in jail forever. He's been fighting. He's on parole. He couldn't stop himself. He can't control himself. And the psychiatrist lady shows up and she's like, it wasn't like that. He had a bad heart. And the people on the, uh, I don't know, at the jury house are like, is that true, Mr. Dad? Did he have a bad heart? And he's like, no. And it's so damning to her reputation that she tries to kill herself. Yeah. And I think there's a tasteful way and an untasteful way to deal with the theme of suicide in movies. Sure. And I don't know that this necessarily was made at a time where people were really capable of doing that. I think it's important for people to understand that at the time this movie was made, suicide was seen as a really, really abhorrent, selfish thing. There wasn't an understanding like there is today where if you're struggling with suicide and depression, there's some sensitivity that's extended to you as a result. Not in all cases, but generally now we have a better idea about how to deal with those situations. And I don't think they had that then. And I think that shows in this movie. I, I didn't really like that scene very much. Um, so she tries to kill herself. They find out about it at the courthouse and the father recants and he says, it's true, he did have a bad heart. It wasn't unreasonable for them to get in a fight. I, I hit him myself earlier today and Elvis goes to see her and she says, I thought, which was actually rather poignant, she says, I'm so ashamed. And he's like, everything's going to be okay. You know, he kind of gives her some comfort. And then from there... Um, they actually just, they like, I think they like crossfade or slow fade. All it is after that is a simple shot of Elvis just going to school. Like, I don't think they actually unpackaged too, too much. They have a goodbye at the train station. Yes, there you go. Yeah, they have a goodbye at the train station. And while he bores the train and is looking longingly at her, the, the bad girl which we'll get into their names and all the actresses and stuff. Yes. She's there too, and she sees this, and she's all upset. Yeah, she's upset. Because it looks like he's he's not going to choose her. Yes, and I want to say also, I actually really love this lady's character because they establish her sense of self 
in the shots, even when she's there at the train station realizing that Elvis isn't going to pick her, she has like a little crooked smile at the end where she's just like, oh, okay, because she's matured. Yeah, she doesn't need him, really. That's right. She knows that her situation is not dependent on this guy that she feels passionately about. And she seems to get the understanding between a passionate affair of being in love with somebody and what actual love is. Like, they don't come out and say it, but I think they really conveyed that in the movie. And Elvis asked the psychiatrist, he said, I've got two pathways in front of me, and I have this really nice girl with this really nice family that I could get married to, and I could live up to that kind of lifestyle that I've always dreamed of, that people don't want me to have. Or I could go with this girl who needs help and who does need somebody. And I could be that person, but it would take my path on a different life, and I don't know what to choose. And the psychiatrist says you should choose getting educated, which I thought was a really good response. I thought it was really poignant. It was especially considering the times when young people were under a tremendous amount of pressure to have relationships in a very specific, regimented sort of way. And yeah, they end the movie, they say goodbye at the train, and Elvis goes off to school, and that's it. And I think that was a really good movie. Yeah. Also, one more thing. Sure. I love the opening title cards. I don't know if you saw the beautiful red font. It's really nice. Like, as soon as the movie started, I was like, look at this beautiful font. I just love that. It's such a such a daring color. <laughs> it's so great. It looked like some soul bass stuff, you know? Sure, sure. It's like, this ha- This is a pretty classy production is really the thing that comes down to. It is, yeah. It's pretty classy. And that's why it failed miserably at the box office. Uh, and actually, I think is the only Elvis movie that lost money. Wow. So, God, I hate that this is the way that the world is, but I mean... What can you do? If you market your brand towards young teenage girls who are expected to fall in line with the cynical ideas of modern society, when you give them a fresh take and you give them something actually slightly progressive, I guarantee you there's going to be pushback to that, right? Yeah. You can't market yourself one way and then give your fans something completely different. Exactly. Yeah. Don't worry, they get back to it in Blue Hawaii. Oh, God. Yes, they do. (laughs) More than ever. They just gave up. You could totally tell. Between this movie and Blue Hawaii, you could tell they were like, anyway, let's get back with the program. (laughs) And I'll I'll repeat it again when we do the Blue Hawaii episode, but Blue Hawaii was his most financially successful movie. Mm -hmm. It made so much money. It's fucking Blue Hawaii. So he literally was coming off of his worst, like, financial film to, like, his biggest hit. So, like... (sighs) It was a no-brainer for them to be like, well, we got to do more Blue Hawaii's and less Wild in the Countries, and that's just a shame. Yeah, a real shame. This is the first time, too, that you get the sense that Elvis is like, you know, he... He could have really been a great actor with the right direction. Oh, for sure. In this movie, he does a good job. I think the drunk part where he's supposed to be acting drunk, it's hard to act drunk, I think, effectively. Yeah. It was really funny, though. That's one of my favorite scenes. It was funny. Yeah, they they kept it light, right? And I, I think he did a good job, and I think he really did... He worked well with with what material they gave him, and it's going to get harder for us, too, because the more movies you watch... 
Imagine watching every movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, you know. And I thought you about start it. To, yeah, I know. <laughs> Me too, man. And you start to see, if you watch them back to back to back, you start to see, like, little things, little ticks, little nuances that they always bring to the table. And it's hard for you to delineate between whether or not that's a good thing, a good interpretation by the actor, or if that's a crutch they're leaning on. And Elvis has some of those things. He does this thing where instead of working a nuanced emotion with his body language, he'll do it with his jaw. Mm. I don't know if you have picked up on that, but anytime Elvis wants to portray that he's feeling tense or upset or off or anything like that there's no body language there's no way that he sits or stands or walks or, or really does anything but in his jaw the way that he like tenses and untenses his jaw that's the only thing that you have to go on that lets you know the severity of that and i i think that's a great start but he could have been way way better and he could have done a really great job in this movie if he had been given the chance i think yes wow <laughs> so, yeah. so much praise it's, it doesn't that feel good to be like wow there's, it does there's so many good it things was, to talk about it was so nice to sit down and just like watch a movie and like it's different with like blue hawaii and like some of the classics where you're like oh my god it's elvis and blue hawaii sure you know that's one thing but Going through other movies like Flaming Star, where you're just like, just kill me. Just kill me now. <laughs> you know, it's very nice to finally sit down and watch an Elvis movie and be like, wow, this is just nice. Mm-hmm. I'd watch it again. Yes. I'd probably watch it again in my lifetime. Yeah. You know what? I immediately bought, I, I ordered the Blu-ray wow. after watching it because I was like, I need to own this. Yeah, it's really good. Um, right. So let's get on to more people that helped bring this wonderful little picture together. Yeah. Who are we talking about? Well, you mentioned all those beautiful nature shots. I don't know if that was like second unit footage or whatever, probably. But the overall cinematography in the movie is very nice. It is, yeah. And we'll talk about the cinematographer. His name is uh, William C. Miller. Okay. uh, Who has a few Oscar wins under his belt. Wow. He won the Oscar for cinematography for 1951's A Place in the Sun with uh, Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor. And then he directed the 1959 movie, uh, The Diary of Anne Frank. Oh. Which one of the actresses in this movie was in that movie. Oh. He also, once again, every so often we keep pulling little James Dean connections. And so the cinematographer of this also did the cinematography of James Dean's final film, 1956's Giant. Wow. Oh, and then here's an extra little weird thread. His final project, he was working on the big, like biblical epic the greatest story ever told in 1963 and then he suddenly had a heart attack and died mid-production and he was replaced by loyal griggs who was the cinematographer on gi blues interesting we've talked about him already uh oh yes before i forget because everyone loves it when i talk about the alternate titles this was going to be called (laughs) (laughs) this was going to be called there was only one alternate title for this. It was originally going to be called... We should, yes. We should have an air horn for when I swear, and then another one for when you list the alternate titles. <laughs> we might. That, that sounds like more work for me to do, so it probably won't happen. Yeah. But there's uh, only one alternate title. It was going to be called Lonely Man, which is a good segue into the songs, because that's actually one of the two songs. There was six songs originally. There's only four in the final film, because two of them got cut. Jesus, I, I don't even remember the songs. That's the thing, too. They're very matter-of-fact. Yeah, I remember him singing with the girl on the steps. That's the big one. And I really can't remember any of the other songs. 
the other two, there's just the title track, Wild in the Country, just plays over the credits with that beautiful like landscape footage and, and nature and stuff. And then the two other ones are in a vehicle. He sings one with his nice girlfriend. Yes. Well, actually, let's yeah, let's list them. So Wild in the Country, opening credits. And when he's driving with his current nice girlfriend, he sings, I slipped, I stumbled, I fell. Mm-hmm. And then the, the big ballad with uh, the bad girl is In My Way. And then he has a little duet in the car. Once again, they're just like listening to the radio and they sing uh, Husky Dusky Day with Hope Lang. Hmm. So yeah, there was two other songs. There was Lonely Man, which they actually, it was a sequence where I guess, because at one part he starts working at a garage on the side. Yeah. And there was, I guess he was just going to sing Lonely Man in the garage because there's actually footage of this in the trailer for the movie, but it didn't make the final cut. And then there was another song called Forget Me Never. Um, So they recorded both of those, but those were not used. Because the movie is actually long enough. Let's get, we could talk about that. It's actually, other than, it's only a few minutes shorter than uh, King Creole. So it's the second longest out of all of his films. Yeah. But warranted because of the material. And like, you know, yeah, I, said, they, I think so. They allow time for things to develop and, and give people yeah, so. full characters. Um, do, 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 do. Let's keep on trucking. We're going to talk about that trio of uh, leads or supporting female characters. Yeah. So the uh, psychiatrist, her name is Irene Sperry. She's played by Hope Lang, who was only like 18 months older than Elvis. Wow, really? Yeah, they were going to cast. That's the thing. They were actually hesitant to cast her because she was, she was too, they thought she was too young for the part. But I mean, you know, with some hair and makeup and everything, it works out. Yeah, I think they really pulled it through, especially with the costuming. Mm-hmm. Now you start to see costuming in movies a little bit more tailored to personal identities and stuff like that. And I think they, they there's a couple of suits. Oh my God, I, I want to talk about her red dress. Okay, go for it. Um, I just want to talk about, it. it didn't really fit her character, actually, like a red dress, for real, for a psychiatrist, okay, in 1960, okay. <laughs> but it, it's such a, it's such a beautiful garment. Like, I was stunned. Oh, it was so good. It was a, it was a, a knitted dress. It's a bad girl dress technically. So it's a, it's a knitted dress. It, it hugs the form, mm-hmm. and it's made out of um, some really fabulous material that I don't know what it is. And it's just, oh, it's just beautiful. Anyway, that's my story. I just wanted to comment on that dress. If, if I anybody... would have been disappointed if you didn't point out some some clothing at some point. I mean, yeah, we got it. It, it, I loved it. It was so good. Yeah, not every outfit in here was great, but they did tailor the outfits appropriately. The sure. the psychiatrist wears suits and and suit combos. The good girl wears cotton shirt blouses and and skirts, and the bad girl wears more like uniform style stuff, kind of haberdashed together. She looks a little. Slovenly is not the right word, but she looks a little hobcobbled, and I sure. think that was appropriate. Yeah, yeah, they did a good job. And so, yeah, let's move on to that girl. Yes, Noreen, the cousin Noreen Braxton. She's played by Tuesday Weld. Uh, oh wait, no, I didn't talk about who who Hope Lang played. It's like Hope Lang who played uh, Irene Sperry, the the psychiatrist. What she's done. Um, she was Oscar nominated for Best Supporting Actress. A few years prior in 1957 for Peyton Place. Hmm. It's a big melodrama. I mean, this is a big melodrama too. So like, you know, yeah. this is this was the movies of the times, 50s and 60s. And then in her later career in the 70s, she had, she made some appearances in some interesting films. She plays Charles Bronson's character's wife in the original Death Wish. Hmm. Um, so no spoilers for that. She doesn't make it through the picture. <laughs> but... Uh, that's an interesting. I was like, oh yeah, wow, okay, neat. And then she also is in David Lynch's 1986 Blue Velvet. Ooh, yeah, 
interesting. It's nice to see because sometimes after these Elvis movies, a lot of these actresses just drop off. They or like kind of they only off. do a few more yeah. movies, but like she was working well into the eighties, which is nice. It's pretty cool. And then Tuesday Weld, who plays Noreen, the cousin. I just want to say her yes. name is Tuesday. Her name is Tuesday. Tuesday Weld, yeah. Tuesday, like her name is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's spelled Thursday. the exact same as the day. It is Tuesday Weld. Why did you name your child Tuesday? I didn't look into it more. I don't know if it was a her her you know what? Let me do it right now. It's fine. I find that really interesting. There's a lot of interesting names we've had. Like Wednesday Adams. Was it common to name people after days of the week? I don't know. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Okay. She was born Susan Weld. So. Oh, so it's a, a name she probably picked for herself for a film, I guess. I guess. Interesting choice. Well, she legally changed her name to Tuesday, October 9th, 1959, which was just two years before making this movie. Interesting. All right, then. The more you know. Whatever you say, Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, here's some deja vu. So I was just talking about Hope Lang, who played Selena Cross in Peyton Place and was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Mm-hmm. Well, Tuesday Weld played Selena Cross in Return to Peyton Place the same year as this movie. Oh, that's so weird. So we have these two actresses that actually play the same character in, in one and, and then the sequel. Um, that's so bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> that's a little strange. <laughs> I just, I, yeah, I was, I was like, this is so crazy. And then she also makes an appearance in an 80s movie of note hmm. later in her career. She plays the character of Jesse opposite James Caan in Michael Mann's debut film Thief, 1981. Hmm. It's a fantastic movie. Got a really good Tangerine Dream score. Ooh. Really? Yeah. I recommend it. Hmm. Maybe I'll check it out. And then also in, 80, in the 80s, in 88... She's in a movie called Heartbreak Hotel. Oh, you mean like a Heartbreak Hotel, not an Elvis movie, though? It's an, it is not. Well, Elvis is obviously dead by this point, but. Oh, right. right let right. me tell you about Heartbreak Hotel. <laughs> Heartbreak, yeah. Heartbreak Hotel is a 1988 American comedy film written and directed by Chris Columbus, who did the first two Home Alones and the first two Harry Potters. But he directed this movie with David Keith playing Elvis Presley. Oh my god. <laughs> and Tuesday Weld playing this single mom and it's set in 1972 and it's a story about her son this this young teen he kidnaps Elvis and tries to hook him up with his mom. Okay? That's bizarre. That's so strange. That is so strange. Yeah, and it's like what's, they, what's stranger about it is that they got somebody yes. from an Elvis movie I to know. play That's so bizarre. Jesus. <laughs> so that's a thing that exists. There's some there's some wild stuff. So let's talk about the good girl. Yes. The third, um, the nice, she's named Betty Lee Parsons. Of course, she's a Betty Lee. That's like yes, of course. Very yeah. classic. She's played by Millie Perkins, who, and I said I was going to come back to this, she played the titular role of Anne Frank in The Diary of Anne Frank in 1959. It's very interesting. She looks like she would play Anne Frank in The yeah. Diary of Anne Frank. <laughs> right, because Hope Lang and Tuesday Wild are the blondes, and then Millie Perkins is the brunette. Yes. She has a very striking face. Mm-hmm. You know, she's got a very, she's still very pretty, very beautiful, but she has a, a style of, of facial structure even that, that you don't see much in movies. It's more narrow. It's like... It's, it's very petite. Yeah. Exceptionally petite about the facial features anyway. So those are the ladies. There's a lot of supporting people. We don't have to get into every single one of them though, do we, Matt? That would take a lot of time, wouldn't it, Matt? We've got the time. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> I'll make the time. <laughs> you can say one other movie that they played in and that's it. Well, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not going to. Okay. So um, <laughs> there's the Irene's, the, the other guy in Irene's life there, the one who's yes. married. and then The lawyer. See, yes. His name is Phil Macy. He's played by John Ireland. He was in Spartacus the year before this. And, well, I'm breaking the rule already because he was also, he had a supporting actor nomination yeah, for 1949's All the King's Men. <laughs> Can't keep it in your pants. This oh, is important. Really? Yes. I, I really want to watch All the King's Men, actually. I'm so, I'm, I'm, that's really interesting to hear that he's in that. Yeah, aren't you glad I brought it up? Anyways. Um... No, I'm not. <laughs> Time, Matt. Time is money. <laughs> but did you know that he's also the first Vancouver-born actor to receive an Oscar nomination? I'm, I did not know that, Matt. That sounds riveting. <laughs> For our audience's benefit, I currently live in Vancouver. I'm from Ontario. Yes, yeah. Matt lives... Yeah, he's from Ontario, but he's just completely abandoned everything to do with being somebody from Ontario and Mm -hmm. is just living that... Living that big old V yuppie lifestyle up in the big city with the rubbing shoulders and the... The movie stars. Studio execs. Oh, yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah. Jumping in the ocean or whatever riding the boat between the island i don't know what happens in vancouver <laughs> all the all the you know the good stuff yeah the so, yeah, basics for vancouver which that's a little <laughs> peek behind the curtain well, obviously as much as it sounds like we're in the same room recording this like it's just so seamless <laughs> uh this is actually like a coast to coast process pretty much yeah pretty much yeah. yes except i'm in central canada sure yes i know not all the way down good enough Close enough. Uh, Phil's son, Cliff Macy, is played by Gary Lockwood. That sounds familiar. Yes, Gary Lockwood. I only have one credit to talk about because it's really the only thing that's like the most noteworthy. He plays Dr. Frank Poole in 2001, A Space Odyssey, 1968. Ah, I see. Who's the other astronaut who's not Dave. Yes. Yeah. Then there's the uncle, Uncle Rolf. Yes. (laughs) Uncle Rolf. He's played by (laughs) William Mims. He's like one of those character actors. So he has 125 credits on imdb that's a lot but i will just point out the children's hour which was came out the same year as this uh which is a audrey hepburn movie oh mm-hmm. yeah and uh now we're going to talk about a fun side character the one scene character who is the the professor that they bring uh glenn what is his name glenn glenn's writing to i vote him out I vote instead of the old guy for the fun side character, even though he's nice. I vote the black lawyer. No, I'm bringing. I'm that saving those two. So for, I'm cool. saving those two for last. I'm talking about the lawyer oh. and Irene's housekeeper, who's also very important. She's uncredited. She, yes, but she actually has the most. She's uncredited. Yes, I know. Damn. One step forward, two steps back. It's a shame. But I still want to bring up that the the professor is played by Alan Napier, who played Alfred in the 66 Batman TV show. Oh my gosh, that's so fabulous. I knew I recognized him as soon as I saw him. I was like, oh, where have I seen this guy? So there you go. Okay, so let's get into um, the character of Davis. He doesn't even get a full name, too. What the heck? Uh, Of course. Yeah. Davis the lawyer, who's played by Rafer Johnson. Get this. Get ready to freaking Mm -hmm. flip your lid. Okay. He's a Olympic gold medalist in a decathlon. What? Yes. He won the 1960 Olympic gold in the decathlon. He had won the silver in 56. Wow. And then he transitioned into acting and did a bunch of parts, including playing Davis in this movie. Wow. That's wild. All the way up until he played a character named Mullins, who's a DEA agent in uh, License to Kill, the 1989 uh, Bond movie. Oh, I was just gonna say that sounds that sounds very familiar. That was one of the Timothy Dalton ones. 
Ooh, we should do the Bond movies after this. <laughs> oh, okay. Is that how it's going to be? No, we don't have to. Considering how much problematic stuff we have in Elvis movies, I do not want to get into the amount of... Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, and then Ruby Goodwin plays Sarah, Irene's housekeeper. So this is crazy, because this is a movie all about writing, and it's very, you know, dependent on its writing. And she was a writer as well as an actress. Wow. She's only got 18 credits, but in her early career, she was personal secretary and publicist to actress Hattie McDaniel. Wow. Who, of course, won the Oscar for Sporting Actress or Gone with the Wind. She was the first African-American to win. Yeah. So that's interesting. Wow. And then she went on to write a bunch of poetry and won a poetry award in 1935 at the Los Angeles Festival of Arts. Very cool. And if anyone is interested in tracking down her poetry collections, she has one from 1942 called From My Kitchen Window and one from 1944 called A Gold Star Mother Speaks. She wrote a musical called American Rhapsody in 1942. She has a collection of autobiographical essays called It's Good to Be Black from 1953. Wow. She sounds like a pretty heavy hitter. She was the first black author to win a gold medal from the Commonwealth Club of California, and she plays an uncredited housekeeper role in 1961's Wild in the Country. That's insane. Yeah. How can that be uncredited? You know, like, that's just astounding to me. Just ain't right. I know. Maybe she asked to be uncredited because she knew Elvis movies were bad. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Even though this is one of the better ones. Yeah, even though this is one of the better ones. But how are you supposed to know that going in? I mean, you never know. That's amazing. I just... We did it. We've we've managed to talk. I've talked all the talk. You know, it's so sad to watch Elvis movies and be painfully aware of the lack of representation. And of course, you know, what do we expect? We're watching Elvis movies, but... There's something to be said about understanding a social construct and seeing it in movies over and over again. Like you, if, if anybody in the chat feels that they are really well versed in the ideas of, of like how black people are treated in media, I really recommend going back and watching these movies and like thinking about the absence of black people in these movies, of colored people, even in Flaming Star. You know, there's no fucking natives in Flaming Star. It's just a bunch of Puerto Ricans and Portuguese, or I think it was Puerto Ricans and Portuguese. There's quite a few Mexican actors, but yeah. Yeah. So, and it's like, I don't know. I just think that people should watch these movies and see for themselves what our history is built on. You know, Elvis isn't the pinnacle of film, but it reflects a concept and a cynicism about society that is very carefully curated for us today. You know, big brands now, it it pays to be woke. And we're ham-fisted a lot of ideas about representation without actually being asked about what representation should look like. Right. And it's important, I think, that we go back and acknowledge a time where representation was not allowed. It was strictly off the table because of the the times that it was being made in and how not everybody was doing that, but certainly there was a, a thread running through Hollywood that was very keen and very happy to keep the status quo as such. And I think it's really, really important to see. It's it's really like moving to watch these movies and just discover how shitty Hollywood is. 
That's why we're getting up on our soapbox. Yeah. We're shouting out these people that deserve to be better recognized than they were in the films that they appeared in. It's interesting to see the change, right? Like, at the time in the 60s, the studios told you, if you don't get to be in our movies because we don't want you in our movies. Yeah. And now the studios say, we want you in your movies because black people buy movie tickets. And so we want you in there. Yes. Or native people buy movie tickets. And so we want you in there. And it's the same thing with romance. You know, women like movies too. Well, we better put them into a movie, but we don't know what to do with them. So we'll just make them love people. And that's going to be their whole background. It's really cool to see the, the change in, in film. Yeah, that's my hot take. No, it's good. Uh, I only have two noteworthy factoids. One I already mentioned earlier, which was that this was the only Ellis movie that lost money during its initial release. Also, that in in the original script ending, Irene actually commits suicide and and dies. Wow. And and the preview audiences were not having that, so they reshot um, stuff. So she survives. Yeah, I think think that was a smart idea. Yes. I think that would have turned this movie from a relatively good movie to watch to a shit one, because that misunderstanding of what suicide is and how it happens Mm -hmm. is like yeah yeah the weakest part of the movie is that whole third act yeah it is especially with the timeline of like as you said like they're doing this hearing then she's discredited then tries to commit suicide the word gets back to them they're still doing the hearing yeah and then the dude's like oh wait actually i changed my statement my son did have the condition it's like wait how much time like what's going on yeah you really don't understand the process of like time in that third act for sure though to be fair like um courthouse cases and things and this is just a hearing this isn't even like an actual like yeah court thing but those do take long times they so. do take a long time it could be the still, whole day had passed but still it's very strange and it, sh- it should have just yeah. it could have written it differently it could have yeah i think um, i will say though that i don't think that there was an effective way for the plot to move as drastically forward as it did without that. Sure. It was an easy shortcut for them to like, just be like, this is big emotional stakes. Boom. Whoa. And it's, yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I think they, for lack of a better concept, I think they did okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, so that was, uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about? No, I gotta, we gotta fit it in. Otherwise I'll have to fit it into the next episode. I don't want to do that. Okay. We're going to talk about the West side story of it all. Oh right, yes. Because this is this is a fascinating. I'm I. This is the kind of stuff my mind races about and goes crazy. And I've <laughs> I've been thinking about it's the it. The thing that the thing that keeps you up at night is what if Elvis had made it into West Side Story? Okay, here we go. So let's just talk about it. The studio wanted Elvis to play Tony in West Side Story, which came out the very same year as this movie, 1961. And in fact, because of the production of West Side Story, which ran from August 10th, 1960 to February 1961, it would have, let's say there was a universe where like nothing else changed. We just, it's just this movie, uh, he does West Side Story instead of this movie. So that movie disappears. We don't get Wild in the Country, but also we don't get Flaming Star because that actually started back in August of 1960. Oh. Like West Side Story's production was so long and like went, was like so over budget well it's a big budget thing that it actually took the production of two elvis movies worth of time to make wow which is funny yeah i think that would have been a good decision yeah in a world where we lose wild in the country because we get to put flaming star on a fucking guillotine i think i could make my peace with living in that world yeah because in the end we still have king creole so i you know it's not the end of the world yeah i think so too and also then we'd have west side story with elvis presley (laughs) 
which I'm just think about it. Okay, because the more I thought about it, the more I was like, well, he, there's nothing in West Side Story that he hasn't done in previous films that we've seen. It's actually right in his wheelhouse. It is. Even to the point that Tony doesn't do any of the crazy choreographed dance stuff. That's right. That's the other character. So Tony just has his own side story going on. Yep. And instead of dubbing the singers, because both Natalie Wood and uh, Richard Bamer did not do their own singing in West Side Story. So I'm curious, like, imagine Elvis doing Maria or singing... Uh, something's coming, something's good, you know, like... I, I think he would have taken off, honestly, as an actor, and, and it would have been a completely different lifestyle and future for him. And I think, honestly, I think if West Side Story had happened, he might not have died on a toilet. I really think so. This is the big what-if of it all. Yeah. And because I, I always go... Because I can't help myself, I went the extra mile. I figured while I'm back here in my alternate history... Let's recast the four main parts of West Side Story. <laughs> okay. Because we were just talking. We were just talking about you know, people playing the proper parts. Yes. Because the only Puerto Rican in West Side Story that had a main role was Rita Moreno, who played Anita, of course, right? Right. She won the Oscar for it, and she's great because she's yeah, like the strongest part. Oh yeah, sure. So, but like the, all the other Puerto Ricans, ooh. Like, I love George Shakiris as Bernardo, but he's Greek. Yeah. Um, so let's, here's a fun thing. Let's, yeah. Let's take Perry Lopez, who played Two Moons in Flaming Star. Flaming Star is not being made anymore because we're making West Side Story. So Two Moons, played by Perry Lopez, who's Puerto Rican. Let's make him Bernardo. There you go. Yeah. Now our Puerto Ricans are played by Puerto Ricans. <laughs> now Maria is played by Natalie Wood. She's not Puerto Rican. So I'm going to do a crazy thing. And I, even though Rita Moreno wins the Oscar for Anita, let's make Rita Moreno play Maria opposite Elvis. And here's there's actually even a little extra tidbit I'll throw in. They actually dated. Really? IRL for a brief time. But only, this is the funniest part, only because she was with Marlon Brando at the time and Marlon Brando was sleeping around. So she started dating Elvis to make Marlon Brando jealous. Oh my God, that is so hilarious. She is such a boss. <laughs> it's so good. Um, and then so you're like, okay, well, then who do we put as Anita? So then we take Cheetah Rivera, who originated the role of Anita in the Broadway production of West Side Story. We make her Anita. And there you go. I round it all out. Ah, perfect. This is what I thought about instead of going to sleep one night. There you go. <laughs> Amazing, Matt. Yes. Now let's wrap it up because we've, we've done it. Yes, let's wrap it up. Well, I, uh, I actually recommend that um, if anyone's going to watch any Elvis movie, that they at least watch this one. And... Um, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, this is this was uh, this was I was hoping that there would be a pleasant surprise like this, but I was I didn't yeah. think it would happen, but there actually was. Yeah. Here it was. Here it is. I hope there's more like this. I really hope that there's a oh, God, least I really one hope to, especially post Blue Hawaii. I hope somehow there's something yeah. that, that can even get close to at least this more like you know, three-dimensional characters and things, but I ooh, it's it might be rough. Yeah. Um, yeah, more people should be talking about Wild in the Country. It is an underrated Elvis movie. I agree. Um, so without further ado, I guess if that's it, we shall sign off and say thank you. Thank, thank you very, you very much. much.